Take your copy of God's Word, open it with me to the book of John, picking up where we left off last week, John chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 22. John 3, verses 22 through 36. You may know already that William Carey was one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church. He was called to India towards the end of the 18th century, and there he faithfully preached the gospel for about 40 years, overcoming one hardship after another the whole time he was there. And yet, nevertheless, God used him. He translated the Bible into six different languages. He translated portions of the Bible into 44 languages, the author of 60 books, and get this, he even led the campaign to remove Sati. If you don't know what that is, it was this horrendous practice that they used to have in India where they would execute a widow on the day of her husband's funeral so she could be with him in the afterlife. He led that campaign to get rid of the practice of sati. And through him, now there are today 32 million followers of Jesus in India. There are nine colleges that are named after him. Oh, and by the way, in his spare time, he was a professor of Bengali because everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> now, I tell you all of this because if you were to go to India today, if you were to visit his grave, and if you were to look down and read his tombstone, this is what it says. William Carey, born 17 August 1761, died June, 9 June 1834, a wretched, poor, and helpless Worm, on thy kind arms I fall. You might read this and wonder why in the world would they put this on the tombstone of such a great man? Because that's what he told them to write. You might wonder how in the world could a man who did so much, who accomplished so much, see himself in this way as a wretched, poor, and helpless worm? Because William Carey understood something that we also need to understand. He understood that his mission in life, his purpose in life, was to exalt Christ. Not self, Jesus. And let me tell you something. Even William Carey was paying himself a compliment by referring to himself as a worm compared to Jesus. This way of thinking goes completely against the current of our society and our culture. You understand that this world is all about exalting self. 
If someone is entry level, they want that next promotion. If someone is second chair, they want to be first chair. If they're second string, they want to be a starter. If someone's a colonel, they want to be a general. If someone's a vice president, they want to be president. This is human nature. So what we're going to read in the Word of God this morning, understand, this is a completely different way of life. But as Christians, this is the life to which God has called us. And it is only when we stop trying to exalt ourselves and make our lives about exalting Christ that we experience the fulfillment and the joy that we long for. Now, the example in our text this morning is John the Baptist. We haven't seen John the Baptist since we were in chapter 1, back before the holidays. But you will recall, he was the forerunner. He was sent by God to announce to the people the arrival of the Messiah, to point people to Jesus, and then get out of the way. That's exactly what he did. As we're going to see in our passage, not everybody was happy about that. And so, at, just like at the beginning of John chapter 3, there's a story, and then John the Apostle, the author of this book, he comments on that story. Once again this morning, we're going to read a story, and then in the last few verses, John, the author, comments on the story that we've just read. And there are three things about exalting Christ that I want you to see in our passage. First of all, this temptation for us to exalt ourselves. This temptation for us to exalt ourselves. Look at verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, there was a brief amount of time in which the ministry of John the Baptist overlapped the ministry of Jesus for a while. John was baptizing. It says Jesus was baptizing, although when we get to chapter 4, we are told that technically it wasn't Jesus doing the baptizing. It was his disciples who were baptizing. But I want to point out something in verse 23. Did you notice that we are told that when John baptized, he went to the Anon, he went to the river, and we are told why he went to the river. He went to the river to baptize because there was much water there. The very fact that John had to go to the river where there was deep water proves beyond any doubt that when John baptized, he was baptizing by immersion because you don't have to go to the river and you don't need deep waters in order to baptize by any other method. But the very fact that John and Jesus were baptizing, that this was happening at the same time, this led to a problem in verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, 
and all are coming to him. There was a dispute. We don't know all of the details. We don't know exactly how it got started, but maybe somebody said to the disciples of John the Baptist, what's happening? What's going on? You guys used to have all of these big crowds. Man, everybody came to hear John the Baptist preach. The Jews, the Romans, the soldiers, the Pharisees, even King Herod came to hear him preach. And now everybody's leaving John to go hear this new guy, Jesus. What's going on? And you know what? The disciples of John the Baptist, they did not like that one bit. They did not like the fact that their crowds were getting smaller and Jesus' crowds were getting bigger. But do you know who did not have any problem with that at all? John the Baptist. So listen to his response in verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What a wise statement. What a great lesson for all of us to learn. That if a man has anything, he received it from heaven. John had been blessed with a great ministry. God had worked through him in a powerful way. And yet, as John was nearing the end of his ministry, and as he looked back, he remembered that any success he had had was 100% a gift from God. The large crowds, the prominent people who came to hear him preach. Every person who repented, every person he baptized, he did not earn it. He did not achieve it. It was given to him by God. So when a man or a woman understands what John the Baptist said in verse 27, when you grasp this principle, you know what this person will not do? Someone who understands that whatever they receive was given by God, this person is not going to exalt themselves. They're just not. We see a similar statement made in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Do you understand we all face this temptation in life, this temptation to act as if we earned what God has given us. We all face this temptation to act as if we achieved what God has done in our lives. And when you learn this lesson, it is a marvelous thing. It is a liberating thing to learn that whatever you have received came from God. And all of a sudden, when you learn that, you realize that you, have, you don't have to keep playing that silly game where you base your value and your worth on a comparison to somebody else. Because whatever they have, God gave them. Whatever you have, God gave you. If you've been blessed, God gave you that blessing. If you've been successful, God gave you your success. If you have some influence, God gave you that influence. And because John understood that everything he had was given to him by the Lord, he dared not complain when he saw God's blessings upon Jesus. Now, I can tell you personally when I had to learn this lesson 
on a personal level. You know, I was 28 years old when First Baptist Church of Homestead called me to be the pastor here. 29 when I got started. Obviously, that was a, a long time ago. Um, but that was still pretty young. And let me tell you what God did and how he taught me a lesson. It was only a couple of years later that a much bigger Baptist church in Miami called a pastor who was even younger than I was. And this other younger pastor, you know what? He preached better than I preached. And he had more degrees than I had. And he'd already written his first book. And dead gummit, he's better looking than I was. <laughs> and I know that's not saying much, really, in my case, but still, that was a really hard pill for me to swallow. Do you know what God did? God used that younger pastor to teach this, at the time, young pastor to rejoice in the success of others and to rejoice in the success of anyone and everyone who is lifting up the name of Jesus through whom the kingdom of God is growing because whatever they have, God gave them, and whatever I have, God gave me. The Apostle Paul, you remember, was in prison when he wrote his letter to the Philippians. And you remember what happened in that first chapter? There were a lot of preachers out there, Paul said. There were other preachers who were actually happy about the fact that Paul was in jail because those other preachers thought, less competition for me. Isn't that pathetic? But what did Paul say? He said, nevertheless, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, therefore I rejoice and I will rejoice. In other words, it doesn't matter what their motivation may be or how bad it may be. If they're lifting up Jesus, I'm happy for them. Brothers and sisters, there is no room, and I mean no room at all, for a competitive spirit within our church or between churches. And let me tell you something that we will not do. We will not measure our success by comparing ourselves to some other church down the street. Do you realize John the Baptist was just as successful in the eyes of God and he was being just as faithful when those crowds were small as he was when those crowds we're large. We all face this temptation to exalt ourselves by comparing ourselves to somebody else. And we fight against that temptation by reminding ourselves of what he said in verse 27, that whatever a man receives comes from above. We see the temptation for us to exalt ourselves, but we also see in this passage the attitude of the one who exalts Christ. The attitude of the one who exalts Christ. John continues in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him 
rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now let me pause right there. John's disciples should have known better. They should have known he was not the Christ, that he was sent to announce the Christ, the Messiah, to others. John said all along that his goal was to point people to Jesus and then get out of the way. And so to remind them of this, he uses an illustration, and it's a really simple illustration. It's brilliant. It's powerful. It's still just as relevant to us today. John says, okay, imagine there's a wedding. And in this wedding, there's the bride and there's the groom. And you also have what John called the friend of the groom. We all understand that today we would refer to this person as the what? The best man. Now, in the first century, the friend of the groom or the best man had even more responsibilities. It was the best man who would plan the wedding. It was the best man who would send out the invitations. It was the best man who would oversee the wedding feast. And praise God, we don't do, like that, do, do that anymore. I've never seen a best man that I think would make a good wedding coordinator, I'm just saying. But the best man was a very important person in the wedding. So John says, imagine there's a wedding and everybody's celebrating, everybody's happy, except for the best man. He seems upset. Someone asked the question, why is the best man angry? And so they find out, and here's what they discover. The best man is angry because he didn't get to kiss the bride. The best man is angry because he doesn't get to dance with the bride. He doesn't get to go home with the bride. He doesn't get to go on the honeymoon with the bride. Obviously, that would be ridiculous, right? That's kind of how John's disciples were behaving. You see, John understood that the best man's job is to bring the bride and groom together and then fade away. The best man rejoices with the groom because he loves the groom and he doesn't try to steal the spotlight from the groom he doesn't try to take the groom's place now in this illustration that he uses in verse 29 obviously Jesus is the groom numerous times in the Old Testament Israel was referred to as God's bride in the New Testament the church is the bride of Christ I believe here in John chapter 3, for this purpose, the bride is really the congregation of believers. And John knows that he is one of those believers, but he also knows that he has a role to play, that he is like that best man. His job is to point people to the groom and direct others to follow the groom. That is what mattered to John and that is what is supposed to matter to us. Are people following Jesus? And John says the attitude of the best man in that wedding, that is my attitude when it comes to Jesus. And that's why he can say at the end of verse 29, look at that verse one more time, at the very end of that verse, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. His joy is fulfilled. Now, I looked it up. 
Every time that word fulfilled appears in the New Testament, that Greek word, it is used to describe a completed task. For example, and the scripture was fulfilled. Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Here, John the Baptist says, my joy is fulfilled. In other words, this is it. It doesn't get any better than this. And what is it that causes his joy to be fulfilled? Seeing Jesus get all the glory. That's what. And there's something that is very ironic about all of this. The more we lower ourselves and the more we demote ourselves for Jesus' sake, the greater the fulfillment and the greater the joy we possess. And so we give to Jesus our obedience and our service and our worship and our times and our talents not because Jesus is some kind of egomaniac who wants it all for himself. No. We give him all of these things knowing that when we give him these things, that's when we receive the blessings and the benefits for doing so. Now, because this is true, it leads John to finish by saying this in verse 30, and I want all of us to read this out loud together. He must increase, but I must decrease. I believe if you had asked John for his life mission in just a few words, that would be it. He must increase I must decrease. No wonder Jesus said he was the greatest man ever born. No wonder Jesus said he was the greatest prophet born among women. His whole life was about him decreasing so that Christ might increase. Now, when we read this statement, there is a question we have to ask. What does it mean for Jesus to increase? He can't increase in deity because he's already divine he cannot increase in power he's already omnipotent in what sense in what way does jesus increase well i can think of a few things his fame can increase as more people know him his dominion can increase as more people follow him his praises can increase as more people worship him in these ways and other ways. He can increase. And John said, for that to happen, I must decrease. And just as we asked, what does it mean for him to increase? We also have to ask, what does it mean for us to decrease? For me to decrease means any loss that I experience that results in his gain is worth it. Any loss I experience that results in his gain is worth it. Any loss of fame on my part that would make Jesus more famous, worth it. 
any loss of glory on my part that would make him appear more glorious to this world, worth it. Any loss of comfort that I have to experience, any loss of possessions, any loss of any kind that would cause his kingdom to grow, it's worth it. It is always worth it for us to decrease so that he might increase. And I wonder what would happen if we all had a he must increase, I must decrease attitude. I wonder how that would affect our witness. I wonder how that would affect our homes. I wonder how that would affect our marriages. I wonder how that would affect our church if we all said he must increase. I must decrease. Is that your attitude this morning? We see in this passage this temptation that we have to fight for us to exalt ourselves. We see the attitude of the one who exalts Christ. But then there's one more thing we see in the latter part of this passage. We see the reasons why Jesus is worthy of exaltation. And starting in verse 31, almost certainly it is no longer John the Baptist speaking to his disciples. There's a shift here, and it's not John talking to his disciples. It's John the Apostle talking to us about the story we just read. And here's what John does. In rapid-fire succession, he gives us one reason after another after another why Jesus is worthy of being exalted, why we should decrease so he might increase because you know what there are a lot of people that should ask why should i take the back seat to jesus why should i demote myself for him why should i decrease so he might increase and so john is just going to give us one reason after another look at verse 31 he who comes from above is above all He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. It is obvious that he who comes from above and from heaven is Jesus. He is not the one who comes of the earth. That's John the Baptist. That's you. That's me. No, Jesus is eternal. John says he is came from above he came from heaven that cannot be said about anybody else and therefore two times in verse 31 John says that Jesus is above all he is above all he is above all angels he's above all demons he's above all nations His authority is above all other authorities. His wisdom is above that of all sages. He is above all. John says that's why he's worthy. Then verse 32. And what he has seen and heard, he testifies. Skip to verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God Here's another reason why Jesus is worthy of being exalted. Other people may deliver messages from God. John said, Jesus, when he speaks, whenever he speaks, whatever he says, every time he opens his mouth, his words 
are the very words of God because he is God. Now, that cannot be said about anybody else. Only Jesus, that's why he's worthy. Go back to verse 32. And no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Now, when John said in verse 32, no one receives his testimony, he clearly was not saying nobody ever believes in Jesus. When John wrote these words, he saw so many people who were not believing in Jesus. It seemed like no one was receiving his testimony. It felt like no one was receiving his testimony. But then he says in that very next verse, in verse 33, he who has received his testimony, what does this person do? They certify that God is true. In other words, the one who knows Jesus. The one who has been saved, the one who has been born again, this person will testify that he is the real deal. This person will testify, oh, he really is living water that satisfies us. He really is the bread of life that fills us. John says that's why he's worthy. Here's another reason at the end of verse 34. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Many other prophets had already come and gone over the centuries. And to each of them, God had given them a measure of His Spirit But when Jesus came, John said, because the Father loves the Son, He did not give Him a measure of His Spirit, but the fullness of God's Spirit was upon Him and working through Him, which is why no one ever lived like Jesus lived. No one ever taught like Jesus taught. No one ever performed miracles like Jesus performed miracles. Nobody ever had the impact that Jesus had. It was because the fullness of God's Spirit was at work in him and through him. And John says, that's why he is worthy. Now, he gives us one more reason in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We should exalt Jesus, John argues, because he is the one who is able to solve our fundamental problem. And our fundamental problem is the problem of sin that separates us from God. Notice John says that the one who does not believe shall not receive life. Now, why not? He said the wrath of God abides on him. Not will abide on him one day. No, abides on him meaning right now. We saw last week earlier in the chapter, he who does not believe is already condemned. 
And so right now, the one who does not believe, John says, is under wrath. Even though God loves us, we saw in John 3.16 how much God loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And yet even though God loves us because God is holy, wrath is his response to our sin. And this is why Jesus came from heaven to earth. This is why he laid down his life on the cross for you and for me. There in that moment at the cross, do you realize what was happening? Do you realize why it was so necessary that it be so terrible? Because in that moment, it was the wrath of God being poured out for sin on him like a beam of heat and light from a magnifying glass on a sunny day. It was pointed right there upon Jesus when he died on the cross. And only Jesus was the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who could go to the cross and exchange his innocence for our guilt. He was the only one who could take our place in that way. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus was willing to do that. Only Jesus did it. And John says, that's why he's worthy. And because Jesus did that. The beginning of verse 36 says, He who believes in him has everlasting life. He who believes, not he who works, not he who deserves it, not he who earns it, not he who is baptized, he who believes, and notice he does not say will have eternal life. In other words, if you stick with it, if you hold on, if you try real hard, one day eventually you will have eternal life. No, that's not what he says. He who believes has eternal life, meaning you have it right now. Oh, and by the way, by definition, if something is eternal, how long does it last? Eternally. And he says, this is the possession of every believer right now. That's why he is worthy. He is worthy of being exalted. He's worthy of our lives. And he is worthy of you exalting him if you've never done so as Savior and Lord of your life today because it begins right there. Would you join me for a moment as we pray? Our Lord and our God, how we thank you that you sent Jesus, that he was willing to go to the cross where your wrath was poured out on him for what we have done. And therefore, your wrath need not be upon us anymore. So, Father, I, I pray for each one who is here that our lives would be about exalting Christ, not exalting self, I pray for each one here that we could truly say, as John said, he must increase and I must decrease. God, I pray you would help us to make that a practical reality in our lives every day, the way we live, the way we speak, the way we think of ourselves, the way we treat other people, that it would all be about Jesus increasing and us decreasing. And God, I pray for the one who is here today, and, and certainly in this congregation or watching online, God, there's some who are watching at this moment 
who have never exalted Christ by confessing Him as Savior and Lord. So I pray for that individual who today needs to place their faith in Jesus and follow Him, that this would be their day of salvation. Thank you, O God, for being so good. Thank you that Jesus was willing to lower Himself and lower Himself from heaven to earth to the cross to the tomb, that He was willing to keep lowering Himself so that we could have eternal life. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.